0: فَلَمَّا دَخَلُوا عَلَى يُوسُفَ آوَى إِلَيْهِ أَبَوَيْهِ وَقَالَ دُخُلُوا مِصْرَ إِن شَاءَ اللَّهُ آمِنِينَ رَبِّ الشَّحْلِ صَدْرِي وَيَسِّرْ لِي أَمْرِي وَاحْلُلْ الْعُقْتَةَ مِّن لِّسَانِي يَفْقَهُوا قَوْلِي فَالْحَمْدُ لِلَّهِ وَالسَّلَامُ عَلَى رَسُولِ اللَّهِ وَعَلَى آلِهِ وَصَحْبِهِ أَجْمَعِينَ أَمَّا بَعْدُ a discussion plan for you that's revolving ayah number 99 of Surah yusuf um i'll translate it first it seems pretty straightforward at first glance but there's a what seems like a slight but i think it's a deep enough uh, conversation necessary uh that this ayah should be discussed on its own um i would say to start off that in order to grasp what we can from this ayah and to share with you guys what we've come to learn and what can be a benefit for myself and all of you uh, trying to, you know, extract as much wisdom and guidance we can from the Qur'an. This was quite an exercise for both myself and uh, Suhaib and it was actually pretty rewarding. So I'm grateful that we have each other and that Allah has given us this opportunity to do this kind of tadabbur and this kind of reading and, and research. Um, so let me f- first start off by translating. We're at the scene now where the parents have arrived in Egypt. So فَلَمَّا دَخَلُوا عَلَىٰ يوسف, When they all came into, entered upon Yusuf, literally entered upon Yusuf would mean that, perhaps it means they came into the court of Yusuf salam, And it's, when they entered, that means all of the sons of Jacob, all of their families, the wives, the children, uh, Yaqub salam, and his wife also apparently, right? So this large family gathering has now come into the presence of the ruler of Egypt, which is Yusuf salam there are narrations surrounding this moment uh, about how there was a procession, thousands of soldiers, and how even Yaqub alayhi saw him and said, is that the Pharaoh? Because that's that wasn't a bad word at the time, right? Is that the Pharaoh? Or is that the Fir'aun of Egypt? And he was told, no, this is Yusuf alayhi salam. So, you know, in, in the course of all of that, um, there are other things that have been said in the narrations that I'm going to skip a little bit, but get to... You know what we can, what we need to definitively discuss. So they came into the company of Yusuf. They, they entered upon him. First thing, Awa Ilehi He pulled both of his parents towards himself. And the word pull towards yourself, Awa Ilehi, is the same verb that was used for when he pulled bin Yamin towards himself in order to protect him. It's the same verb that's used in the Quran to describe the young people who took pulled themselves into the cave to protect themselves though the root letters hamza Wao and ya and the muslat is awi al alawi and the If'al version is iwa this word actually means to stick to something for because though if you go into a cave because you're too weak to withstand the cold or the the winds or whatever else then you've engaged in the act of awi meaning you stuck to something for protection but it could be you cling to someone because you're sad. Or you a, a baby clings to the mother because it needs comfort. So every time the weak or the, the needy cling to someone for refuge, for comfort, for ease, then that's the verb that's used. And the, the verb used here suggests that يحو, that Yusuf can't wait to be the comfort for his father. Like he can't wait for that moment where he gets to comfort him. So, awa ilayhi abawayhi. But the, the, the challenge here is Aba, Awa Ilehi أَبَوَيْهِ he pulled both of his parents towards himself he, both, he pulled them in to give them refuge to make them feel safe to give them comfort all of that's included but it doesn't just say that about Yaqub it says it about both of his parents and this is peculiar because so far in the story mom hasn't been brought up at all except by passing reference when the dream was mentioned right um because the sun and the moon represent the mother and the father, right? So, this is a curious thing. Mom has been absent throughout the story, and now she's being implicitly brought up again because Abawai, the pair form in the Arabic, is basically a combination of Ab and Um, right? So, the mom and dad is, is included, and in they're both his parents. And that's why I titled the talk today in this way. So, the, the first thing that I'd like to maybe help you understand. Is why is mom missing in the story? obviously, when you lose a child, then the, the the tragedy of that and the devastation of that would hit both parents, and arguably even more so the mother so one argument is that the mother had already pa- the actual you know uh, biological mother of Yusuf Alayhi had already passed away. but before we get into that conversation let's look at the quran 's formula for telling stories. You see, you and I are used to uh hearing a story or hearing an event and we want all perspectives. We want the we want the the full account. And it's fair to ask the question because we have these sensibilities of how stories are told, how come the mom's not being talked about? But let me tell you something about the Quran's formula for telling stories. The, the Quran's agenda is actually not to tell a story, first and foremost. The Quran's agenda is to give us lessons, guidance, and principles that can be extracted from parts of the story Allah considers timeless, of timeless value, right? So He wants us to learn something from these events, but not every single detail of these events. These are a few decades in the making, the story of Yusuf a.s. But we have a few pages, if not, not even volumes, we have a few pages capturing those decades. So what Allah did is He took bits and pieces from that story that we need for guidance, And everything else has been omitted. Not because it's unimportant. It's important historically. Obviously, it happened to these same people. Every single day that transpired in the life of Yaqub A.S. has value. Every minute he spent, every prayer he made has value. But there are some things that Allah considered of timeless value that represent guidance for, for all human beings that will seek guidance from Allah until Judgment Day. Having said that, what Allah does in the Qur'an is that He compromises... Telling you about all the characters in a story or everything about any one character, he only focuses on the things that go towards that heart, that higher purpose. So it might come across to you if I was personally telling you a story and I skipped out on the mom, you'd say, Hey, well, what about the mom? <laughs> but the Quran isn't doing that. The Quran is not interested in telling you a story, the Quran is interested in guiding you and it's actually the same reason that in the story of Musa السلام, the father is pretty much entirely absent even though he has a father he's entirely absent from the story and even if you don't think about the father and the mother um, you know there are there are elements like Harun was his younger sibling or older older sibling right? but he's missing from the story in the beginning too and his sister has to go get him by the water so there's other interesting questions Allah skipped some details in the Qur'an because He wants our focus on other things, right? So that, having said all of that, and that is the formula of the Qur'an, really. Like in any, you'll notice in the storytelling in the Qur'an, more is missing than is said. That's actually the formula. So you have, we have very little that's been said, but the little that's been said is so valuable and so powerful. And what's even more interesting is that when you compare the volumes, like exponentially larger text in the whatever transcript of the Bible we have now, the Hebrew Bible that we have now, that covers this same story, it's exponentially bigger in the Bible. It's huge in the Bible. And in the Qur'an, in the much more skimmed, arguably skimmed version, you shouldn't have the kind of detail that's in the, in the Bible. But actually the Qur'an is talking about things the Bible didn't even touch. The Qur'an is addressing things that were never known even by the Israelites. They just weren't known. So this is a remarkable feature of the Qur'an. But regardless, now it's important to bring up that Allah decided not just to say that he pulled his father who was stricken with grief. He says he pulled both of his parents in, right? So that's going to require a little bit of a conversation. So and, and at the end of all of that, we're going to I'm going to try to help you think through what could be the benefit in us hearing that from Allah. The, the both parents comment because every word is a value, right? So it's a, it's a peculiar addition to the story and it definitely deserves attention. So we're going to do a little bit of that inshallah or maybe a lot of bit of that and then we're going to get to the rest of this ayah. So and I won't even translate the rest of it yet because that'll fit in once we have this discussion in place. So first I'm going to walk you through a, a summary of what our scholarship, Muslim scholarship has had to say about how they can fill that gap. What is it? What's the purpose, or who is being referred to by the mother? So I'll read some things from Fakhruddin al-Razi first. awwal murad bi When it comes to both his parents, there are two views. There are two things that have been said. al <inaudible> al-murad The first meaning is what is meant by this is his father and his biological mother. Wa ala al and based on this, what's been further substantiated is إن أمه كانت باقية حية إلى ذلك الوقت، that his mother was still alive up until that time. Um, uh, وقيل إنها كانت قد ماتت. And it's also been said that it she actually had already passed away. إلا أن الله تعالى أحياها. Except that Allah brought her back to life. وأنشراها من قبرها and pulled her out of her grave حتى سجدت له تحقيقا لرؤية So she can do the sajda you know, to to confirm the dream of Yusuf alayhis salam So our Mufassirun, because we came to hear from reliable Israelite sources that the mom had actually passed away, they said, well, Allah must have brought her back to life, right? In order to fulfill this dream, because it has both his parents, so that must mean her. And by the way, her name from the biblical version is Rachel. Okay, so we're going to use that that name the second position has been Muslim scholarship that the meaning here is his mom and, or his dad and his mom's sister his خالة لأن okay. because his mother died while giving birth to بن يمين uh, Benjamin, the younger brother وقيل بن يمين that ولمّا and when the mother died then the father married her sister. So that's the, the scholarship view, Muslim scholarship view on this or the opinion that's been uh, found. Uh, فَسَمَّهَا اللَّهُ تَعَالَى بِأَحَدِ الأبوين. So Allah named her one of the two parents because لِأَنَّ تدعى لقيامها الأم. Because the one who nurtures or takes care, because when, when Rachel died, the one taking care of both kids was the sister in her place. So she was taking, playing the role of the mother. And in Arabic... The role of the mother, whoever plays the role of a mother, is also called mom, and that's actually a contemporary thing too. When you're raised by somebody, even if they're not your biological mom, you're still going to call them mom, right? You just get accustomed to that, and that's that's a normal thing. Um, Uh, 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 So, so, or it could be that the the aunt in ancient language is actually considered a kind of mother, just like the uncle is considered a kind of father. And that's actually true in the Quran because wa ilaha abaika Ibrahim wa ismail just to give you a little bit of timeline because some of you aren't as familiar with this stuff or it's not settled in your head, so bear with me, okay? So Ibrahim alayhi salam has Ismail and Ishaq, right? Ishmael and Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, right? So Ibrahim, then Isaac, Abraham, Isaac and then Jacob, and then the 12 sons. Ibrahim, Ishaq, and then Yaqub alayhi salam, and then the 12 sons of Yaqub alayhi salam. Okay? When Yaqub was dying, he told his sons, what are you gonna worship after I'm dead? And the Qur'an said, they responded, we will worship your God, and the God of your fathers, Ibrahim, and Ismail, and Ishaq. So, when they were talking about their fa- their fathers, or your, f- they're telling Jacob, your fathers, right? They didn't say your fathers, Ibrahim and Ishaq. Because that would be father and grandfather, right? They included uncle in it. Because what is Ismail to Yaqub alayhisalam? He's his uncle. But they included what word? The God of your fathers, ilaha aba'ika, Ibrahim wa Ismail wa Ishaq. So what you find, as a qaleena, as an evidence in the Qur'an and also in language, is sometimes the uncles or the aunts were actually also referred to as father or mother. And this is actually what is also been claimed about Ibrahim salam's father, because the Arabic word used for him in the Qur'an is abihi, uh, his father. And there's an interesting side conversation that Tabat طبع Taba'i mentions in his tafsir. Um, and some of you will have an allergic reaction because I quote it, because it's not a Sunni source. I read Western literature. I'll read an atheist about the Quran. I will read Christian literature on the Quran. I will read anything I can on the Quran. If I find evidence or reason in it, or I want to hear what the other argument is, I will keep an open mind and study and read. So I have my own convictions in faith, but I don't discriminate when it comes to seeking information or seeking knowledge. You know, if we if we take that approach... Then, for example, if I want to study linguistics or Arabic, then one of the most remarkable pinnacle works in tafsir studies is Al-Kashaf by Az-Zamakhshari. Anybody who's worth anything in tafsir knows that. But he's known to be Mu'tazili. And I don't carry Mu'tazili views in terms of understanding theology. And that is a very you know, obscure you know, view of, of the aqidah of Islam. And yet he's still the gold standard in grammatically analyzing and rhetorically analyzing the Qur'an. And so many after him who hated his guts for his views, his beliefs, actually took knowledge from him when it came to Arabic analysis and in many cases even plagiarized him. So there's that. So I, I don't personally discriminate um, when it comes to looking at different sources and what has been said and how has it been you know, argued and substantiated. The, the thing at the end is our loyalty is not to an author our loyalty is the, to the divine author. And anybody who makes an argument, we look at what is being said more than who's saying it, right? And which is exactly what a judge is supposed to do in court. Before they look at what statement, you know, or who's making the statement, they have to look at what is the statement itself. They have to value the word itself, right? And that's what true research should be about. Anyway, so uh, Tabai's discussion, and thank you, much for bringing that to my attention. Um, I'll, I'll give you the the, the the you know basic version of it. Is that Ibrahim alayhi salam, the the by the end of his life, he makes this du'a in which he says, "My uh, my master, forgive me, wali wali and forgive both of my parents. Forgive me and forgive both of my parents, even though there's an injunction in the Quran that he's not allowed to pray for his father." Okay, that that, that that cannot happen anymore. And that there's an istithna given in the Qur'an. So there seems to be this like, recon, like this this uh, conflict. But actually it's resolved by Tabatabai in his view by use of the word Ab and Walid. That Walid is the maternal biological, or, or the biological father. And Ab is actually the one who raised him, which is why so many professor said that Azar was actually his uncle who raised him. So there are two different things. Ab is the father figure. You can even call it the father figure. And sometimes the bi- biological father is the father figure. Other times the biological parent has passed away. Or he's absent. And the uncle is the father figure. Or somebody else becomes the father figure. They don't become the walid, but they can become the ab. They can be the ab. And this is the word that's being used in this ayah, abawaihi. Right? So it's the one that plays that role. is actually being highlighted in the word abawayhi. So that's what we got from the tafasir. Uh, there's there's a couple other comments here that I want to read to you. وَقِيلَ أَنَّهُ لَمَّا تَزَوَّجَهَا بَعْدَ أُمَّةٍ صَارَتْ li Yusuf And it's also been said that he when he married her, that after some time she became the caretaker for Yusuf. عليه فَنَزَلَتْ مَنْزِلَةَ um That she was given the status of a mother. لِكَوْنِهَا مِثْلَهَا فِي زوجية الأب. Because she is in the place in being married to the father. And the, the caretaker can be called a mother, even if she be, even if she wasn't the aunt. Waruia and Ibn Abbas, may Allah be alMurad Abuhu Ibn Abbas has been attributed. This has been attributed to him that this means his father and his grandmother, wa umm meaning the mother of his mother. Hakah uh, Zahrawi. So there are these different, you know, kind of views in Islamic literature. But in order to really grasp this better, I think we have to turn to the genealogy that's mentioned in the Bible and how things kind of played out. This is going to take a little patience from you guys. And I pray Allah gives me clarity in presenting this to you because I think it'll really help. And then inshallah, we'll tie it all together with what I think we can benefit from this ayah. Okay, so uh, if you can bring that screen up, Valerie, thanks. So I'm going to tell you a little crazy story. And those of you that watch like Pakistani dramas and stuff, you're about to get a treat. So there's a man named Laban, and Laban had his youngest daughter, her name is Rachel. He had a daughter older than that, Bilhah, and another one, Zilpa, and the last one, Leah. So he's got four daughters. Notice two of them are in gray because they're considered handmaidens. In other words, they were daughters from a servant or, you know, from a slave woman or a servant woman. So they're not given that full status. What, what happened in ancient society apparently, in ancient Hebrew society, is that when you had multiple children and some of them from a wife and some of them from a servant, then that was given to you, then the children of the servant become servants of your other children. So basically the red become the, the or the, the, the grays become the servant of the reds, according to this. Okay, so Zilpah and Bilhah are servants to Rachel and Leah. And the way it used to work is, if you have an old, like Rachel is younger and Leah is older. So the younger girl, the younger servant will serve the younger daughter. The older servant will serve the older daughter, okay? And that's just how things used to work. Now, it so happens that uh, there's a young man named Jacob, Yaqub alayhi salam, who has a twin brother in the Bible. His name is Esau, okay? E-S-A-U in English spelling, Okay. Um, and he is basically what you can call an evil twin. He's he's a he's older, so he came out first. Um, and he is an idol worshiper, he is into adultery and fornication, he does all kinds of evil things, but they are twins. And it's so bad between them that at one point Esau tries to kill Jacob. He tries to kill Ya'qub alayhi salam, and Ya'qub a.s. escapes and comes into this town, and it was Or or when he's escaping, even before then, it was already known that Jacob and, you know, Yaqub and Esau, the two brothers, are going to get married one day. And the family that was primed to marry them was Laban's family. And the idea was, the younger son will marry the younger daughter, and the older son will marry the older daughter. So I'm giving you the, basically the the, the broken down version of this genealogy from the Bible. And it's going to seem like it's a lot, but inshallah, it'll make sense why I'm telling you all of this uh, in a couple of minutes. Okay, so the idea was since Yaqub is younger, he's supposed to marry Rachel. And since um, uh, 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 Esau is older, he's supposed to marry Leah. When Leah finds this out, that the word is that you're supposed to marry Esau, she's like, he's a thug, he's a gangster. She's crying all the time. And, the, and she's so distraught and she's constantly praying to God to change her fate, okay? Because she doesn't want to end up getting married to this guy. It's like an Indian movie for some of you, okay? So she's just losing her mind because she doesn't want to marry him and she's praying that God changes her fate. Yaqub, the, the, again the biblical version. Jacob comes to this family. He completely falls in love with Rachel. He wants to marry her. He asks for her hand in marriage. Laban, the father, agrees. And when you marry, then your servant comes with you. Right. So Bilha or Zilpa, whichever one's younger, will come with Rachel because the younger one with the younger daughter, remember? The younger servant with the younger daughter. Okay, so she'll keep her servant when she gets married. Laban plays a trick. He, you know, because they're they're veiled when they get married, as you know, customary clothing. So he wants his older daughter to get married first. So even though he says that you're marrying Rachel, he actually puts Leah in her place, and Rachel stays quiet about it, even though she wants to marry Jacob and she's really happy about it. The father says, no, the older daughter has more right. She's gonna marry him. Just don't tell him anything. We'll talk about it after it's done. And in order to complete the deception, even though Leah is older and her servant is supposed to be the older one of the two, Bilhah and Zilpah, he put the younger one of those two next to Leah, had her covered, and thus deceived Jacob, Yaqub salam. And they got married. And when it's unveiled, it's the one whose eyes are baggy from all that crying. And she's not the... The Bible would describe Rachel as pretty. And he really liked her. And he really wanted to marry her. And he comes to... And by the way, the the, the, meher, the dowry was that you're going to work for me for seven years. Right? So you can get married to her now. But to pay me off for marrying, the, the marriage gift, is you're going to serve seven years. He says, well, you know, yeah, I did that. But, you know, older daughters should really get married first. And if you still want to marry Rachel, you can. By the way, in Islam, now that's haram. And tajma'u بَيْنَ الْأُخْتَيْنِ إِلَّا مَا قَدْ سَلَفْ The Qur'an talks about this. that You cannot marry two sisters except for what's already happened. But apparently pre-Torah, because this is not even the days of the Torah. This is the Jewish civilization before what we consider Judaism because the Torah was revealed to Musa generations later. This is before the days of that. Right, so this is from Abrahamic times, early times, right? So some of these rules and regulations aren't there, anyway. So he says, Well, you wanted to marry Rachel, I understand, but I really wanted my older daughter to get married first. That's why you know I duped you into getting this, right? It's done. So now, when it's done, he's like, Well, if you want to marry Rachel, you still can just add another seven years to the deal, work for me for 14 years. and... You can marry Rachel too. So basically it describes that in a matter of days uh, or a very short period of time, Jacob got married again. So now he has two wives. He has Leah and Rachel and those the servant girls came with them to serve each of those wives, right? And this brought Leah great deals of depression because she felt like she's not the first choice. She's not the one he truly loves. He, she's prettier. She's younger. He, he likes her more. And then the Bible describes that God so made it that to compensate her for her sorrow, that Leah was the one who could have kids and Rachel couldn't have kids. For the longest time, Rachel could not have kids. So let me show you what happens next. So Leah, right? She has a son named Reuben. Then she has a son named Simeon. Then she has a son named Levi. Then she has a son named Judah, mashallah. So there's four boys. Four boys are born. And the idea is, there's also literature about how they were competing spiritually. They knew that they're married to a prophet and they're part of the noble legacy of Ibrahim alayhis salam. And they want as many sons with him as possible because that noble legacy will pass on and they have a share in that good deed. So that spiritual sort of legacy was a matter of pride back then for them. So Leah has four sons. Meanwhile, Rachel can't have any children. So she comes up with a plan. She tells... Her husband Jacob, they're both married to him, right? She tells her husband Jacob, "Why don't you take Bilha?" Meaning she's giving her hand off to her husband. You know, "Ma'alekateimanukum, you can be with my servant girl." This is this was allowed back in the day, and so you can marry her and have children with her, and I will raise them as my own because she's my servant. So she, he does that. He's with her, and then they have two kids, Dan and Naphtali. Now Leah finds you know when as this is happening she's getting upset because she wasn't having kids in the middle so she says you know what take my servant girl and give me additional kids too so now yaqub salam from the from the biblical version has got an asher now they've got eight kids and after they have eight kids leah ends up having having the ninth and the tenth and even a daughter so Ishakar, zubulin and dina all these kids now so now you know what could go wrong you've got four women You've got three of them with multiple kids. There's no room for any possible jealousy of who's the favorite child or which one matters more or whatever. Obviously, it's all good in the hood, right? Everything's okay. But at the end of the day, if you think about it, the contest between Leia and Rachel, if if you understand this, this contest, Leia felt like, what's the edge she has over Rachel? Well, he loves her and she's clearly the younger one and the prettier one, but at least I gave him all the kids, Right. And even if she gave him kids through the servant, well, I even the score there too. So I still maintain my advantage. At least the, the powers, you know, the, 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 there's no disturbance in the force. Okay, so far. Then what happens is Rachel finally gets pregnant and has Yusuf. She gives birth to Joseph. And then sometime later, she dies giving birth to Benjamin. So the one thing that Leah had over Rachel which was that she couldn't have kids at least directly and every in every other way she was compensated for now that advantage is gone and what's the reminder of that? Yusuf and Binyamin now I want you to think about the psychology of this if the sons are constantly seeing this feeling this you know, towards their, you know, towards Yusuf and Binyamin because of this existing rivalry be- between Leah and Rachel which hasn't been talked about in the Quran clearly but the Bible does talk about them competing with each other on the other side Bilhah and her two sons were perfectly fine. They were ag- all of these, by the way, from one all the way to, to ten. All of these ten are basically okay with each other. Because, you know, they, uh, you know, th- everything's fine. But now even has kids, Dan and Naftali, are like, well, we thought we represented the Rachel side of the family. But now she has kids of her own. So they're becoming team the rest of... E- also, and the only ones isolated are Yusuf and bin Now, when you read the Qur'an and you read, Yusuf and his brother are more beloved to father than we are. So the woman that he loved all along has died, and the only remnant of her is Yusuf and bin You understand? Plus, not to mention their character, which is the, what the Qur'an's highlighting. The Qur'an didn't highlight he loves them more because of Rachel. The Qur'an highlights he loves, them, loves Yusuf alayhis because of his character. So there's a different... Version of the story. Now, I gave you all of this background for a reason to tell you that the Quran didn't say any of this. The Quran said none of this. None of it. Why not? Why in the world not? So, let let me talk about that first before we get to the both parents. This is still the both parents' conversation, believe it or not. So, you can take the screen away now. Here's the thing about why the Quran didn't bring all of this up. Once you understand this entire family dynamic, like watching a soap opera, you're like, oh, that's why they were jealous. Oh, that's why, no wonder he hated Yusuf. No wonder they hated Binyamin. Oh my God, their mom made them do that. It was like, these aunties, man. Like you had all this, like you start coming up with an entire scenario of how this would work and how this plays out in families. What does the Qur'an do? The Qur'an makes all of that irrelevant to teach us something that is it is irrelevant the situation the drama the tension the rivalries all of that is actually just a facade the real thing is the devil shaitan creates jealousy shaitan creates the need to overcome or to look down upon someone else shaitan does all of that not human beings The the human beings fall into the waswas of shaitan. Allah did not endorse that. So, what is the who's the enemy in the Quran's depiction of this entire family drama? And none of this drama has been talked about in the Quran. What's the drama? Brothers hate brother. That's the tension that Quran describes. And what's the cause? The devil got to you. If you study the Bible, it's not the devil that got to them. It's this family dynamic. That's the reason. You understand? So you've got this human psychological kind of reasoning and the Qur'an says, no, you need to understand the underlying spiritual problem. The underlying spiritual problem is how the devil is able to manipulate your emotions. You see what a profound higher road the Qur'an has taken in describing this story, right? It's a a mind-blowing thing that the Qur'an has done here by not describing all of this. And when you study it, you're like, Oh, now now this gets even more interesting. Because Rachel dies while giving Benjamin birth, right? And then when she dies, according to the the Torah and according to Jewish history, and I tend to have personally, um, I tend to have more confidence in Jewish genealogy more than anything else, because their genealogy really matters to them. So when they document who's the son of who and who's all that stuff, that I have more confidence in. What the prophets said and did, I have less confidence. I take that with more of a grain of salt. But when it comes to their genealogy, because their, their identity as a people is so rooted in who's fathering who, who's the mother, where they come from, all that stuff, that's super important to them. So that I put some stock into right so now if you understand that then you know that yaqub alayhisalam theoretically now has four wives one of them has died yes one of them has died and the others have sons that all hate who yusuf alayhisalam whether it's Bilha the servant or it's zilpa or it's leah herself they all have sons that are that are not no fans of yusuf alayhi salam all those years Whatever the drama may have been that's been omitted, we know that the drama existed. The tension existed, right? And one of them is still alive. Now Rachel has passed. It could be that Leah is still alive because the, the Bible describes that she was buried back in the homeland. And it could be, it doesn't say, it could be that they made it all the way to Egypt. When she died, Jacob said that we should bury her back in our ancestral home. And that's where I want to be buried eventually too. And maybe he took her back from Egypt and got her buried there. But there's no mention of her coming to Egypt. There's only mention of where she got buried. So one theory is Leah was in fact alive. And she's the one being talked about when uh, he says he pulled both his parents into the refuge. Because the, the, the person married to your mom is actually your parent. Or has the respect of your parent. You should treat them as the, the, the kind of courtesy you owe to your parents. Right, So we'll talk about the implications on the ayah itself But let's talk about the who So one possibility is it's Leah The other possibility is either Zilpah or Bilhah Which is interesting because Jewish feminists today Are talking about how Zilpah and Bilha, Who history doesn't know much about are not, are not getting the credit they deserve Because Jewish women tend to be forgotten in history But they are the mothers of the Jewish people Four of the twelve tribes of Israel come from them Yet we don't know, because they were servant women, they were handmaidens, we don't know much about them, we don't care anything about them. But we should consider them matriarchs of Jewish society. Now, so what's the Qur'an's take on this? The Qur'an's not explicit about who it is. We can pretty confidently say it's not Rachel. But we can say it's either Bilhah or Zilba, which are both servant women, or Leah, the wife. Now let's look at both possibilities and what we could learn from that. If it is the mother of the sons... Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun. This is, you know, six out of the ten sons that wronged Yusuf a.s. His father's been suffering, but it's also quite possible. And we don't know. We don't know if Leah is also suffering or not because of the rebellion of her sons, or deep down inside she endorses their emotions. We don't know. So we're not gonna throw her under the bus. We don't know, so we don't know. Good enough. Just like we would give benefit of the doubt to somebody who's alive right unless we have some hint that they've done something wrong or we have evidence to that we have no reason to suspect her intentions and if the bible saying there was rivalry among them that's the part i'm not going to take openly you know that's that's the part i'll be skeptical about genealogy i'll take character assassination not so much you know even though i, I described it all to you i'm not going to say that i'm completely convinced that that was exactly the story right but let's just say it is the mother of the sons that abused Yusuf, salam, hurt the father, and all of that. What do you think her emotions are as she's walking in to see the son of Rachel up there on the throne? And he's gonna he's gonna want to give dad a hug, right? Because that's his real family, right? Dad's my real family. Y'all are all together. I'm family with dad. Give this shirt to my father, remember? So she's gonna feel like. She's not included, or she's not, she doesn't have the place in the heart of Yusuf that Yaqub has. And Yaqub has the presence of heart and the presence of mind to know in this moment, I cannot let this woman feel deprived or feel neglected or ignored because she sits. She's in the position that my mother used to be in. She is the wife of my father. So I will honor her just as I would honor my own mother. So he pulls both of them in and hugs them and makes them feel safe. Even in this moment, he's thinking about the feeling of someone else. And you know, when he saw that dream, the sun, the 11 stars, the sun and the moon, it may also be that at that time maybe... The, the Binyamin has just been given birth or the mom is still alive. It's still possible that his mom was still alive. And he doesn't know that that's not going to be the mom. That's going to be out, you know, the the that the one that's going to come back. And when that such that happens, eventually, and this whole dream gets interpreted, he could just say to dad, that's what the dream meant? I thought it would be my mom. He could do that, right? But he's not going to do that. He treats her as if it's his own mom. And what message does that send to... Yusuf's brothers who hated Yusuf all along because of who his mother is right? because he comes from a different and that's the whole basis of hating Yusuf and bin Yamin. and now they see their own mother being honored in this way their own mother is being treated like it's his own mother he, he holds no grudge, he's so loving towards her, he honored mom and dad just the same he didn't just hug dad and <laughs> As salamu alaykum to you too. There was none of that. It's a remarkable moment in what Yusuf alayhi demonstrates. And the Quran captures it so beautifully by calling both of them his parents, even though it is clear to anyone who understands even a little bit of Jewish history that's not his biological mom. So that's one possibility. He sent this shockwave message to his brothers and to the stepmom that you're, you're my mom. You married my dad, you're the, you're the life partner for my dad, your relationship with my dad is blessed, and I will honor you because you are sitting in that position. And the Prophet even said, or til um." The maternal aunt is the status of the mom. You, know, you have to honor her like you would honor your own mom. What's the other possibility? That Zilpa and Bilha, who were servant women, handmaidens, one of them is alive, and everybody else has passed away. And he comes with one of them and he puts them on the throne. He pulls them in and honors them. And what does that tell you? It tells you how these labels that we have, that she was a handmaiden or she was a servant and all of that, none of that actually played a role in the treatment of people. It's also evidenced by the fact that Zilpa and Bilhah gives give birth to sons, but they're not any less sons because even the Qur'an says all of them are a Usbah. The one that come from Leah and the ones that come from the handmaidens are all just sons. It's not lesser sons or second category sons or second class sons and things like that. It's not like that. So there seems to be some kind of a, a distinction. It's pretty interesting that the Israelites accept all of these brothers of Yusuf as equal brothers and the patriarchs of the Israelite people. But when it comes to Ibrahim and Hajar, they use... The same logic to say he's not really the son. It's it's pretty funny that if he's not really the son, then four of your tribes are out. Because <laughs> by that logic, you should be the eight tribes of Israel, bro. <laughs> you know? so <laughs> Or cousin. It doesn't work. That that, that doesn't add up. Any, but anyway, the, the, the discussion of why Ismail a, is actually a legitimate and full-fledged son, according not just to the Qur'an, but the Bible itself, it's something I've talked about in Surah Al-Imran. But anyway, so this is, a, this is a, kind of an overview I wanted to give you about um, the, the, the mention of both parents and pulling them in and comforting them. Like Yusuf Alayhi Salaam understands, and this is what, you know, the lesson I take away for myself personally and for all of you. Uh, one of them is that, you know, Allah has put different people in our life and we're responsible to them. You have have a responsibility to your siblings. You have a responsibility to your parents. You have a responsibility to your kids. You have a responsibility to your spouse. You have a responsibility to your coworkers, employees. But before all of that, let's just talk about just in your family. You have responsibility and different rights towards people. And the first right really is to treat people with dignity, with respect. So they don't feel humiliated, right? So... He is hes a living model of that. People who humiliated him, he took the higher road. And he didn't make somebody guilty by association. You're their mom, therefore I hate you. You know, none of that. Or even if he knew of drama between his mother and her, that's all gone. thats he, He's not bringing that into the equation. What they do and how they carry themselves is on them. But I will treat people right. And that's a recurring theme in the surah. That Yusuf will treat people not in a naive way, but he will give people, he'll do right by people. He'll do right by parents. He'll he won't make her feel ignored for no reason. She hasn't done anything to him to deserve that. And she deserves that place. She deserves the benefit of the doubt. So he's gonna give her that. And he does. abawayhi. And now there's the rest of the family. There are You know, let me tell you the names again. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Gad, Asher, Dan, Naphtali, and their wives and their kids are all watching as both parents have been hugged. And they're like, oh, this is confusing. I thought he'd hug Jacob and give us all a good yelling. I mean, he he said there's no harm, but is he really this nice? And what does he say? And they're maybe feeling a little nervous because they used to be abusive to Yaqub a.s., right? Weren't they just... Didn't we just learn that they were calling him lost and deluded not too long ago? They were the ones being abusive to him, the extended family, all of them, and now they're standing in the court of the king of Egypt who just, you know, uh, hugged his father that they were just abusing. So they're kind of got a heart in the... you know, the, the heart in the throat a little bit. And what is he... He turns to them now. So he's... First things first, honor the parents, give them a hug, make them feel safe. And now that they've been dealt with, then he turns to them. Misra, Aminin. Enter Egypt, if Allah wills safely. If Allah wills safely. If Allah wills, we'll deal with separately. Let's just talk about safely. Enter Egypt, Aminin safely. Meaning, it's as if you just got to the airport. This is the first building you've been to, but you can go to Egypt anywhere. Your safety is guaranteed by the Prime Minister himself. You're safe wherever you go in Egypt. You can go freely wherever you like. You are not going to be put in a well. Welcome to Egypt. Here's a place where you shall be safe. And the one promising safety is the one that they would be scared of. He's the one giving them safety so they have nothing. And he's the one who ensures the safety of the entire country. So he's offering them safety or he's saying peacefully. Also, Aminin can also mean that you carry no grudges. And you come here safe, and you don't have to worry about any previous thing that will be held against you. You're completely set, settled and at peace now. And this is how, perhaps it also means, come into Egypt, aminin, peacefully. Meaning, if you have drama, leave it behind. Leave it in Qanaan, let's start over. Aminin. So what does inshallah here mean? Inshallah means, this is the, the, the first lesson here with inshallah. Inshallah, let's talk about how we use inshallah. We use inshallah, the wrong way we use it is when we're not really sure about what we're gonna do. Like, hey, so I'll see you at seven o'clock like you promised, right? You're like, mm, inshallah, which means I'm not sure. <laughs> or don't hold it against me. And if I'm late, we'll just bl- blame Allah. Right? <laughs> so that's not how you're supposed to use inshallah. Inshallah is a statement about your hope in the future. That's I mean, in Muslim culture, not in the sacred text in our culture it's become a phrase we use when we are hopeful about accomplishing something in the future you know i'm uh, i'm going to graduate inshallah i'm going to go through you know i'm going to f- pass this exam inshallah etc. etc. so the word inshallah has become a word for optimism placed with allah originally inshallah was actually not that inshallah was i have hopes of accomplishing this and but that, i know that will only happen if allah wills it to which is different from prayer. This is why the Prophet ﷺ advised us against using inshallah when we pray. You don't say, you know, and we say this because we're, we, we associate inshallah with optimism, right? So we innocently say sometimes, may Allah give you Jannah inshallah. And you're like, yes, inshallah. <laughs> the problem with that is, may Allah give you Jannah if he wants to. Because <laughs> inshallah means if Allah... Wills. you're like yes if he wants because if he doesn't then <laughs> we're not supposed to say that this is why we don't say inshallah with prayers so what's inshallah doing here if Allah wills enter Egypt if Allah wills safely Yusuf alayhi <laughs> salam knows more than anyone that even if you have Allah's promise that Allah will Allah has chosen you and he will teach you all kinds of speech and complete his favor upon you remember all of that كَذَلِكَ يَجْتَبِكَ رَبُّكَ وَيُعَلِّمُكَ مِنْ تَعْوِيلِ الْحَدِيثِ وَيُتِمُّ نِعْمَتَهُ عَلَيْكَ كَمَا أَتَمَّهَا عَلَىٰ أَبَوَيْكَ إِبْرَهِمَ وَإِسْحَاقُ All of that, من قبل إِبْرَهِمَ وَإِسْحَاقُ All of those promises that Allah, that Yaqub told him that Allah has planned for him But was not told to him is all the trials in between before you get to that Right? I mean it happened, eventually but you don't know, you don't even have a guarantee of the next moment. I as the ruler of Egypt, am telling you, you are safe wherever you go. But even I, the ruler of Egypt, cannot override the ruler of all rulers, Ahkamul Hakimeen, If he wants, your safety will end in the first step outside. I know I was in the safety of my home one day, and in the depths of a well in another. I know I was in a prison rotting forever one day and now running Egypt the next day. When, if Allah wills something to happen, what we think will happen can completely transform and I'm a living example of that. So I'm never gonna say anything about the future without adding what? Inshallah. That's only if Allah wills. I recognize Allah's decree here. And this is also an interesting echo with what Yaqub alayhi salam said to his sons. You know, if uh if Allah wills you know and and I want you to go to egypt from you know enter Egypt from different doors, and I can't benefit you against Allah's will in any way, in other words, yes, I'm hoping you stay safe, but inshallah that's only if Allah wills it to be so just take this road and inshallah, if Allah wills, it will be like that. The other meaning of inshallahu aminin can also be. When you give an instruction to somebody And you add Allah's name To that instruction It's as if You're endorsing it uh, Like you know uh, Come over inshallah You know how you say come over inshallah Or let's talk inshallah You know what you're, you've done You've expressed a prayer Inshallah can be looked at in a sense That way as a prayer Or as a declaration That you have I've brought Allah into this conversation because with Allah's witness, you're safe. Really with Allah's witness that you're safe. So, udkhulu misra insha'allahu aminin, is to the rest of the family. You can settle in Egypt wherever you are safely. This is the shocking moment. This is the first things that these, you know, uh, uh, brothers and their children together and their wives who have been talking so much against Benjamin and Yusuf And their father for so many years And all of those years Is now known Everything they did is known And they're standing in front of the person They wronged for so many years And the first thing they see him do Is hug both their both his parents And to treat his non-biological mom As if she is the mom And then turn to all of them And tell them you're safe You This place I will guarantee your safety I'll make sure that you're safe وَدْخُلُوا Misra, It's a remarkable moment. And the thing that I wanted to, before I let you guys go, highlight, um, is how the Qur'an actually in this way addresses complex family situations. You've got a man with multiple wives or you've got multiple children from multiple marriages, right? And some parents alive and some not alive. And so you've got half mom or, you know, uh, adopting mom or not biological mom at all. And you've got all these kinds of, you know, half connections. And so you've got half brothers. Or you've got half sisters. And you've got, you know, rivalries that may have come down from a different generation. And in all of that, Allah describes that when that tension happens, that tension actually comes from shaitan. And it's also really interesting that the Qur'an recognizes these complex family dynamics as a part of life that's just going to happen you know we have this picture in our head of a certain view of what a family should look like right but since ancient times families were always complicated and they're always going to be complicated if any of you and your extended family is completely normal let me know i'd be really happy to know about this exception on planet earth because ain't nobody's family normal Everybody's got some drama in their family Some com- complexity in their family And everybody who has a complexity in their family Wonders why is our family so messed up Why are we so weird Why do we have, these, why do we have a Reuben in our family Why do we have a <laughs> you know, Why do we have a Leah and Rachel situation In our family Why do we have this Why do we have that Well that's always been there Because shaitan's always been there It's also teaching us that shaitan is an enemy Yes he's an enemy to Islam And he wants to eradicate Islam from the face of the earth And all of that uh, one of the ways to eradicate Islam is to eradicate Muslims from within and what better way to destroy Muslims from within is that, than to destroy their families to get them to hate each other how is this ummah going to be united when people that share the same last name with you can't be united people that live under a roof can't be united and you're talking about the ummah being united so you destroy the brick their building's never going to be built right That's that's such an easy game such an easy strategy and it works So it's so much easier for us to be kind and understanding and empathetic to strangers that can cry about their woes. And the only people we cannot be empathetic towards or patient to hear what they have to say or try to understand their point of view or be forgiving is our own. Our own we can't forgive. Everybody else, hey, man, is going through a lot. I understand, poor guy. This is why people are so eager to give charity to strangers and to watch a video and feel bad, and you should, but when your own uncle will ask, you're not going to give. That uncle? No. Remember last Eid? Not him. Not so, please. I know. What, I know everything about him. There's no way I'm helping him, etc., etc. Right? Whether it's siblings or cousins or uncles or sometimes parents, whatever it may be, this is why. People of the womb, the, the relationships of the womb, the people that are tied to you through the womb, they get priority over other people in Allah's book. Take care of those relationships first. Be mindful of Allah, whose name you use to ask each other for stuff, and be mindful of the wombs, meaning all blood relations and all relations that extend from blood. Be mindful of them. Be careful about them. And it's so beautiful that, you know. Children are being taught to be respectful to, to their parents, even if one of the parents isn't your biological parent. That's what children are being taught through the example of Aba ilehi Be respectful even if it's not your biological father. Be respectful even if she's not your biological mother. They're still they still deserve respect. They're still Allah placed them in the same place. Awa ilehi It also tells you that the role of a son or a daughter in an older age is to provide refuge. It's to provide comfort. Because as we get older, we get weaker. And we need comfort. Just like we were babies and we needed comfort in 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 the arms of our mothers and the protection of our fathers. A time comes where they need our protection. They need to feel safe around us. They're getting old. Their back hurts when they sit down. Their knees hurt when they go up the stairs. They have to go from one doctor's appointment to another appointment. They can't can't stand up as long as they used to be able to. Their eyesight doesn't work. They can't remember things the way they used to. Their skin's getting wrinklier and wrinklier. They can't drive on their own. And as they become like that, yeah, they get crankier. They get harder to deal with. They test your patients more. They, They have more wisecracks now. They've been working on them for decades. So they test your patients more now than they ever did before. But you know what? You're supposed to be like... You and I are supposed to be like Yusuf salam, أَوَا ilehi Abawayhi. He pulled his parents into his refuge. Even the parent that he had no biological connection to. And arguably, possibly, even had a grudge to hold because she was competitive with his mom. Or her kids are the ones that made his life hell and she did nothing about it. We can make all those arguments. Again, we're gonna give her benefit of the doubt. But inside family, giving benefit of that is hard, right? That's difficult. But he, he does it. He does it. It's also interesting in the Qur'an earlier on, oh, we find Yusuf salam alone. We find him lonely. We we don't find him turning to his... Like Rasul when he got overwhelmed, he turned to his wife, right? That's what happened at, at Hudaybiyah. Yaqub salam is married, so when he's being overwhelmed in grief, you should find the presence of mom. Qur'an... Misses that now. What what possible reason could there be? You can look at it two ways. You could say, well, she didn't really care, so she was like the wife of Lut or the wife of Nu, etc. That's one way you can possibly look at it. I prefer not to. Another way you can look at it is she felt helpless. Her sons are grown; they're out of her hands. And sometimes, and let's just say she was an extremely loving wife to Ya'qub. A.s. This will be my last uh, uh, thought for you. Let's just say she's an extremely supportive wife, whether it's Leia or Zilpa or Bilha whichever one and she's caring for him she's, she's concerned about him even if she's all of those things sometimes a person is going through grief and they're going through something they're going through a sadness and it doesn't matter how much you love them you can't take that sadness away just like you cannot actually make someone happy you cannot get rid of somebody else's sadness you can you're not responsible to make someone else okay his grief with Yusuf is his grief with Yusuf. You don't get to say as his wife, I'm here, I love you. Why are you still upset? <laughs> yes, I love you too. That's amazing and thank you, but I'm still devastated about my baby. That still hurts me. Well, why does it hurt you? You have so many other things you should be happy about. No, that's you have me. Uh, yes, I have you, but that's still there. And even if someone doesn't get frustrated with you, because why are you sad? It may also be that they feel helpless. Like, I wish I could help. I wish I could get rid of that sadness for you. Because when you feel hurt, I feel hurt. But there's also an acceptance that some aspects of our grief are ours alone to carry. Nobody else can carry them for us. Some parts of the, those sadnesses cannot be shared with anybody. They're just taken to Allah. It could be that that's, that's one of the ways to look at that ayah. That there are some aspects of grief that no matter what human support you have, it can maybe mitigate it a little bit, but it can't get rid of it. It, it. it can't be addressed that way. And maybe that's the role. That's why she's not been mentioned. Perhaps Allah is teaching us something about that. That sometimes you can be as supporting and as loving and as, as you know, as present as you can. But the hell, the situation still can't be helped because it's beyond your control accepting that we are not in complete control of every situation and every emotion that the people we love feel, that acceptance is a really big part of moving on in life. And to have, to have meaningful relationships in life. And to understand Allah who controls the movement of every leaf, controls the beat of every heart. Now we can't change that. We can't make someone love something, make someone hate something. We can't make someone happy. Now one thing we are capable of, Allah has made us capable. Of, we can give someone grief. <laughs> that He's given us. You know, we can we can hurt someone with our words. We can we can give someone. We can do right by someone. We can make be a source of comfort for them. We can be kind towards them. Maybe we can bring them joy with our words. But understand that at the end of the day, we cannot control how someone else is going to feel, and we cannot alter how someone else is going to feel. That's going to have to be sometimes between them and Allah. They have to find their way, you know, and that they have to find that relief from Allah Azza Wajal. Even Ya'qub had to find that relief with Allah Azza You know, he being married, because you know that's what surprised both of me and Sahib. At the end of all this story, he pulled both his parents in. Wait, he was married all this time, but he was so alone. Look, look at all these pages. All those, What happened to all those pages? He was a low, he was married that whole time. Where was where was the missus? Well, that's my take on the missus. You know, I I'm I'd rather not not give her benefit of the doubt. The Quran didn't cast a doubt on her goodness. The Quran is completely silent about her, which means we should either be silent or think good. Right? That's that's my take on it. We should either be silent because no hint has been given, or we should think good of her. So that that's my two cents on. What I've come to understand about ayah number 99 of uh, this surah, uh, may Allah wa give us all uh, healing through Allah's words and ease our situations and give our hearts comfort in knowing that Allah put His most beloved slaves through trials like these. Uh, and inshallah, uh, we have reached ayah 100. 101 are technically the end of the, the story, not the surah, but the end of the story. And I think 100 is going to take me A couple of days to finish So I must make my epic exit As I leave you Barakallahu liwalakum As-salamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi